Hello there, I'm Mark Hansford. And I'm Alex Wynn. And today we're talking Boris Johnson and High Speed 2 and Damn Safety. Before we're joined by the marvellous Michelle Dix to talk Crossrail 2. That's episode 5 of the Engineers Collective, brought to you in association with Bentley Systems, advancing infrastructure. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. So Mark, this month you're bigging up the new Prime Minister Boris Johnson, I see. I certainly am, yeah. I think it's really interesting. He has made High Speed 2 his first major intervention as Prime Minister. In infrastructure? Well, Well, anything, really. I mean, before he went to France to to meet the G7, he decided a major review of how and if HS2 proceeds is his first big thing. And I don't think we should be worried about that as an industry. He has appointed ex-chair of HS2, Doug Oakeby, an old pal of his from from um, Boris Island days, um, Thames Estuary Airport, when he was London yeah. Mayor, um, to come and do review for him. And I think what's significant really is, yeah, he's got Doug in to, to chair review, but he's also brought in Lord Barclay, who is a staunch opponent of the scheme to be the deputy chair of the project, who has always questioned it on the grounds that the money could be better spent elsewhere, as opposed to the project itself being sort of fundamentally flawed. And and I think what we know about Doug when he was High Speed 2 chairman was his, again, his issue wasn't with the scheme, his issue was the way the government recognised the value of major infrastructure projects like High Speed 2. So I get the sense this review is really going to be more about the broader benefits of HS2 and how we amplify those better. Have we not already done that? And why would he do it? Why Why is he doing it, really, in your well, in your learned view? I mean, yes, we have done that, been here before, haven't we? And there is obviously an internal review by the current chairman, Alan Cook, going on right now, which is focusing very much on how to potentially bring the costs down. So this broader review, what's it really for? Is it just pushing the decision down the line past a general election and past Brexit Day in late October? Well, yes, it could probably be doing that. But that in itself isn't a bad thing, because let's face it, no one's going to sign off on this thing until we've extricated ourselves in the EU or at least know what's happening and and until we've had a spending review so the fact that we're spending that time doing a proper sensible review with a proper sensible chairman that's kind of a good thing and how surprised were you that it wasn't Heathrow that he first mentioned as one of his infrastructure um, projects to be paid attention to at this juncture do you think well that's interesting isn't it I know it's a privately funded project in, yeah. in the main, but I mean, there couldn't have been a much more vocal opponent of that said project for many yes. years. So what do we think? Is he Oxbridge uh, is MP? He, is, is he either quietly letting Heathrow continue or is he quietly making a lot of noise about high speed too so that 
he can quietly can Heathrow, which is which which way? I'm um, intrigued. I am intrigued. I think, <laughs> like I think, a lot of people, I'm intrigued. I think a lot of people are intrigued. Yeah. He's not said much about Heathrow yet as Prime Minister, has he? No, it's not been top of his agenda, but you know, it does surprise me to a degree that HS2 was higher up the agenda for him, given the many years we had of considering there might be an island airport named after him in the estuary and as London mayor, and, and he has relentlessly been opposed to Heathrow, I mean, the most cutting rocks. But I guess uh, Mr Boris Johnson is not someone that we're, who fears changing his mind about anything, as we know. This is true. Of course, the fact he's going to be spending a bit of time with Doug Oakley means he might be dusting off his Thames Estuary Airport idea. Mm. Who knows? Still got to get over that whole wildlife bird strike issue, but we'll see, you know, yeah. never know. Yeah. Also, the fact it might be in completely the wrong place for geography of the UK, but we'll we'll see what happens there. I mean, I as I say, I'm I'm intrigued. I think we're intrigued, aren't we? I think, but I think we definitely shouldn't be concerned about the HS2 review, how it dovetails with Alan Cook's review around cost-saving... Let's see. There's certainly a bit of talk around, and a bit you would you would think there could be some merit in a slight rephasing yeah. of how they build high speed two. Boris Johnson has already talked about the importance of the of the Leeds Manchester link. Yeah. So, do we now see it starting as a more starting from the north and moving An south? HS three first potentially. <laughs> now, and then when it gets to the south, even though he's former south, London mayor, I mean. Does he stop at Old Oak Common? Well, we've written about that. It's entirely feasible. The station at Old Oak Common has been designed to accommodate it being a terminus. It's got good transport links. It saves it a will l- have better transport links. will have better transport links when Crossrail 1 opens. Euston is very expensive, very complicated. Taking that and the tunnels on the approach to it out of the programme de-risks the programme massively. Yeah, you can definitely see that happening. That would be an interesting intervention that a new Prime Minister might like to make. Mm. But we'll see. And if you wanted to hear the opposite reason why you should never do that and should absolutely start at Euston and go all the way to Manchester, then just listen to last month's podcast where Andrew Andrew McNaughton gave us a very robust defence on why should absolutely not be even thinking about terminating at Euston. Episode three. It's well worth a listen. Now, Alex, you are concerned this month, I know, about the broader implications of the uh, near miss at Whaley Bridge and what that says about, well, damn safety, but I guess more broadly, the role of engineers as really responsible, competent checkers of infrastructure. Yeah, it was something I think we were all a little surprised to be seeing. I think, you know, was it about a year ago we did a, a special issue in the magazine about where we were at from... 10 years on from major floods that happened in the UK, 2007. In in that incident, we had something particularly worrying where the Uli Reservoir Dam had some issues with scour and nearly failed. Um, Certainly it was really threatening to um, cause deluge to the local residents. And it was a real... It was a bit of a wake-up call, but it was a real, like, let's see where we're at with this. And, And... Ever since, and even up till then, we've really been heralding the fact that the UK has this incredibly professional, very revered, thankfully, very competent, all all reservoir panel of engineers who are responsible for some of the larger reservoirs around the UK. They do the inspections, they do the checking, they make sure they're the most safe 
piece of infrastructure out there. And we've talked about that an awful lot, even more recently, given it's something we've called for a similar um, type of panel to look at fire engineering safety in the wake of Grenfell. So it was kind of in that sort of like, wow, is there still the potential here that we, we aren't maintaining, we aren't making completely safe some of the most critical, some of the most life-threatening piece of infrastructure if they're to go wrong. Um, obviously, we don't know the intricacies of exactly what's happened. We saw some amazing efforts. Um, you know, some real heroes out there that were really putting their lives at risk by doing everything to make sure the dam was stabilised and it was really scary there for a while. Um, major evacuations. You know, it's something we thought was maybe happening abroad these days. We did an awful lot a while back on Oroville Dam in California. Yep. But I think it's a, it's a bit of a start warning again, was it not? It is. I mean, it's it's definitely, isn't it? It's that, it's that let's not be complacent call, mm. most definitely. It should be a call to the government, I guess, to, to properly enact the, the Flood and Water Management Act, which which came Remind in the wake of the, which came in the wake <laughs> of the 2007 floods, and actually came in in 2010. But mm. key bits of it still haven't been been enacted, and one of which would be to to make the um, the role of the of the uh, the dam uh, reservoir panel engineers even more uh, stringent, um, bringing in smaller dams yeah. into the regime. Because at the moment, it's over 25,000 cubic meter right, yeah. capacity dams that are mm. subject to these stringent checks. But I think it was going even further. To, I mean, some really quite, I don't know, local, yeah. quite hard to find yes. reservoirs actually would be covered by. It would. And, and you know, that's not really going anywhere. So it... Ten years. Ten years. It highlights, doesn't it, that yeah. the people look at this stuff when something like um, Todrook comes along and thankfully disaster was averted, but it just shows this stuff really does need stringent examination as you say we don't know what caused Toddbrook it certainly was part of the inspection regime and had been inspected mm. um, so there will be some interesting in examination going on as to, as to why when it was given a clean bill of health it still had those issues but notwithstanding that there still needs to be some real focus given on critical um, civil engineering yeah. infrastructure I just wonder if there is this conversation again about the skills that we really need to have some incredibly celebrated real peer review stuff going on in some of the most critical parts of our infrastructure. I just think there is a complacency there across the board. I don't think that necessarily is what I'm, we, we know has happened here, but I, I do think it raises that question. Mm. And perhaps it... It makes us think back to our, our first podcast, episode one, yeah. where we talked to Ed McCann, IC Vice President, did the skills review for the ICE, where he has some very kind of bold views on, on the sort of the declining um, technical engineering competencies. And, and so, yes, perhaps let's all go re-listen to Ed and remind ourselves yeah. of, of where the issues are at, because this is an issue that's not going to go away. Yeah. Digital technology is changing infrastructure. It's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Your organization may already be going digital, but if it's struggling to embrace change or realize the benefits of digital technologies, Bentley invites you to gauge your organization's progress by taking one of our going digital assessments at bentley.com forward slash going digital. Well, we've talked one big infrastructure project, High Speed 2. Now we're going to talk about another one, Crossrail 2. And... Really pleased that we have with us here today 
Managing Director of Crossrail 2, the £41 billion project, which is next on the pipeline for London and the South East, Michelle Dix. So welcome, Michelle. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you, Mark, for inviting me here. Ah, wonderful. So let's, let's kick off. Crossrail 2, most people listening will know what it is, but obviously it's a, it's a potentially transformational rail project from southwest London to northeast London, uh, boosting capacity, um, unlocking opportunities for jobs and prosperity. Um, would you like to just catch us up on where you're at right now with it? Uh, Yes, certainly. What I'd remind you of, it's not just a London scheme, though. It's a regional scheme. It extends from beyond London in the south-west and right through the middle of London to the north of London. Um, And the impacts would be felt widely from uh, the Wash to uh, the Solent. So it's a regional scheme of regional importance. Um, We actually first safeguarded a version of the scheme back in 2015, uh, we've been developing the scheme, though, since 2008, when we started to uh, develop the Mayor's Transport Strategy, and we had to sort of justify whether or not uh, what was the predecessor to Crossrail 2, the Chelsea-Hackney line, was still needed. And much of the analytical work that took place in London, looking at the land uses and the transport needs, confirmed, yes, there'd still be a problem in that southwest to northeast corridor. Um, so we did a lot of work looking at whether or not uh, the Chelsea-Hackney line was the right scheme or whether or not we needed to amend the alignment, taking into account things such as the Jubilee line and also all the work that had taken place in terms of the East London line. The outcome of that was a revised scheme. Um, and we uh, made a case for that to be sort of like taken forward. We got the buy-in from the DFT to develop a business case for that. And we submitted our first business case on Crossrail 2 in 2014. Um, that was sort of like received reasonably well, um, but we had to do more detailed work by producing what was called a five-case case, an SOBC. And we did that in 2015. Um, that was going to be reviewed by the, um, the government, by George Osborne um, as Chancellor then and um, others. But what happened was that the National Infrastructure Commission was established and it was one of the first jobs of the National Infrastructure Commission to say whether or not uh, Crossrail 2 was the right scheme for London and to look at what the public transport needs of London were. Andrew Dunnis was chair of the National Infrastructure Commission and uh, his team reviewed the scheme and concluded yes that's what London needed, Crossrail 2. Um, and he made recommendations for us to sort of look at the affordability of Crossrail 2 look to see if we needed to build the whole thing in one go and to come back with a, uh, another strategic outline business case in March 2017 um, and that the government and the mayor should jointly fund the development of Crossrail 2 with a view to uh, submitting a hybrid bill in 2019. So we did all the work that was required, um, went back in March 2017 with an updated strategic outline business case that was reviewed Um, It went through what was called a PAR, Project Assurance Review, um, by the IPA and the uh, link to the Treasury. And we awaited a decision on that, but then there was a general election. Um, And because there was a general election, didn't know who would make the decision. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was, you know, positivity in terms of the strategic airline business case. And then in the autumn, when it was clear that, like, the Secretary of State would still be the Secretary of State, and we worked towards a decision, what was decided was to reflect on one of the recommendations of the PAR, was to see, could we make Crossrail 2 more affordable? It's this affordability challenge. 
Um, and so uh, what was announced then was the need for us to do an affordability review. Also what was announced was for the need to us to take Crossrail 2 forward in lockstep with um, the Northern Powerhouse Rail. Right. Uh, and, to, and to allow Northern Powerhouse Rail to be developed um, and for decisions to be made on Crossrail 2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail. So the Mike Gerrard review was commissioned, an affordability review, and they um, looked at the scope for Crossrail 2. They looked to see whether or not the way we had developed it was as efficient and as effective as possible, and they looked to see whether or not we could um, take the scheme forward in phases because the biggest challenge that we had over the affordability um, of Crossrail 2 is that we, London, had to pay half of the scheme and the government would pay for the other half of the scheme. And the challenge for us was paying for half of the scheme with the funding streams that we'd identified since most of them would come on stream post-construction. And what we had to do is find a way of paying for it during right. construction. Mm. Um, and therefore, if we'd phased the scheme, that would help address that challenge because we could build part of the scheme, collect the fares, the revenues, collect some of the receipts from the oversight development and use that towards helping pay for further phases of the scheme. So an extensive piece of work was done with the Gerard Review yeah. um, in terms of identifying a way forward and uh, just before a decision was going to be made on what that might be, um, there was the news of Crossrail 1. Ah. Um, and that basically um, obviously sort of had to uh, make us rethink about the uh, affordability of Crossrail 2 in the context of we, uh, London, having to pay for half of the scheme with the funding streams we'd identified because key funding streams were the Mayor's Community Infrastructure Levy and the Business Rate Supplement as well as oversight um, development um, receipts and the net revenues. And with the delay to Crossrail 1, um, that would have an impact on us being able to use two of those revenue streams. Right. So we address that, as you do. Um, think, well, what does that mean? Um, well, what it means is that we would have to sort of uh, look at the construction timetable against the uh, MSIL coming in because that was a key thing for us to sort of like to be able to pay half during construction and to work out how we could do that in the context of what happened with Crossrail 1 um, and to submit our fifth strategic outline business case which we have submitted. You have submitted it. We have submitted mm. and we await a decision and it was always said that we'd get a decision with uh, the spending review this year that was announced by the Chancellor and the Secretary of State last year. Um, but the question is when the spending review will be. But we've submitted the, the case and um, we've submitted it reflecting on the position of Crossrail 1 and how it has a bearing on Crossrail 2 to explain how we could take the scheme forward. So as ever, positive. Well, fair enough. And, and perhaps we'll sort of unpick some of that as, 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 as we go through. But I guess my, the first obvious question is that in your fifth business case, that's quite a thing to have had to have done and and at any stage in any one of those business cases did the project ever come back as anything less than a really positive project for London and the South East region? 
I mean, the, the amount of review work that we've done and the amount of work we have done on Crossrail 2 has been quite extensive. Um, lots of people, when they review the scheme, say, no, this is a very detailed, strategic outline business case, um, given the amount of work that has been done in terms of the design and making the case. And where we're challenged in terms of, is there anything else you could do instead? Is there a better scheme? We come back to Crossrail 2. Uh, when we're challenged in terms of could you have designed this in a different way, we come back to sort of where we were really. Um, so, and that's because a lot of work had had been done to get to the 217 um, yeah. business case. Um, but, but I think sort of the um, the key key thing is is coming up with a first phase that's going to cost X, that's affordable to London. Um, but also is affordable to the the taxpayer generally, because if the government has to pay half, it's how can it pay for half of Crossrail 2 whilst also ensuring that it can support other schemes. And we and we are sort of like supportive of that. Mm. What, what was your immediate reaction, Michelle, when you heard the slightly grim news coming out of the Crossrail 1 project? And then I guess after time was moving on did you have a real sense immediately and then soon after of what it really meant for your project and and what you were likely to have to start doing to try and make the case again i think on the immediate news of crossrail one's delay uh, my view was it wasn't you know i don't think anyone realized how long the delay would be mm. and therefore um the the impact wasn't fully understood I think also uh, the whole debate about who would pay for any costs associated with delay weren't understood. So in terms of it being delayed, um, when it was announced, without that understanding, then I wasn't, oh my gosh, you know, this is terrible. Mm. It was sort of, well, you still need Crossrail 2, and by the time Crossrail 1 opens, people will be saying, well, where's Crossrail 2? But when the reality of the Crossrail 1 delay was sort of obvious then yes, it does have an impact on our timetable. Mm. And the financial side of it, you touched on already, but mm. how much complexity is it added in the financial, um, the funding of Crossrail 2 from what's happened with Crossrail 1? It's, it's more a timing issue because okay. it's the, the, the key sort of like funding stream that we uh, needed to access as part of the, sort of the, um, the pre-construction um, was the MSIL. Mm. And whilst that's needed for Crossrail 1, then what we need to look at is what's the timetable for delivery for Crossrail 2 in that context. Um, and in some ways, there is a silver lining associated with that because if you sort of get consent for a scheme, there's usually a huge political appetite for you to start digging straight away. Um, and people just want, want to sort of get on with it. The fact that we um, have to look at the overall timetable and link it to when funding streams become available gives us an opportunity to have that time for so like more pre-delivery planning um, post-consent that will ensure that we've worked out in much more detail exactly how we're going to procure it and deliver it. So that's the silver lining. And well, certainly we'll come, we'll come on to that as well. But before we get on to that, the, 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 there's so many interesting things about Crossrail too. So, the progression um, in lockstep with Northern Powerhouse Rail is really interesting. Mm. I'm not sure... Well, I certainly can't think of when that term's been used before, certainly not with regards to an infrastructure project. I think most people, when you talk to them, are sort of, what's that is their first sort of response. So um, I guess, you you know, you, 
that could be construed as a bit of a, a bit of a constraint around again around time scales. But I guess equally, I guess the fact it's tied to a, a project that has got a lot of political backing to it, Northern Powerhouse Rail, maybe it's it's, it's a good thing that the two things have become tied together. I mean, I guess sort of how do you how do you see it? And and I and I suppose also, given that was a a commitment under the previous previous Prime Minister Transport Secretary combination, is is that still something that applies now? Uh, well, it, it was it was certainly a term that was developed in the autumn of two seventeen, mm. um, partly because of this issue of being able to have a scheme for Crossrail two that was affordable to the taxpayer as well as obviously mm. affordable to London and London taxpayers um, to pay to pay for the scheme alongside these other schemes. Yeah. And if you looked at the National Infrastructure Commission, they've got a whole list of schemes that need funding, of which Northern Powerhouse Rail is one as well. Um, so the, the fact that they were sort of like put in lockstep isn't a problem. It's a case of some big decisions have to be made on infrastructure. We need to sort of have the information about these schemes sort of available so that those decisions can be made in a sort of a proper way. So it's not a problem. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost a mature view on how to plan and deliver national infrastructure, I yeah. guess. So the fact you're in there and part of part of that mix is a, yeah. is a positive thing. And it didn't, it didn't mean that exactly every stage had to be the same you know lockstep doesn't mean you know sort of like um if you do so and so you have to do it at mm. the same time it means you know in parallel well obviously they've only yeah. done one business case you've done five so clearly it's not the same <laughs> They'd be yes, playing but, catch we're, up. We're more than, but we're more than happy to help our sort of like um colleagues and mm. share sort of like what we've done in terms of our business case um in them sort of like produ- you know producing their business cases um because sort of we we are we are you know, as as London, we want to sort of see the other cities grow in the same way that London has grown. And if if there's any help that's of use, then we're more than happy yeah. to share it. Good. I like that you are talking very positively about things that must have been quite trying in their own ways at different times. Has it equally been as I guess as um fruitful with looking at the rephasing of the works, given what you mentioned earlier? How how easy is that with a big project like Crossrail too? Uh, I think the key to all of this is making sure that the team that you're working with are prepared to be flexible. Um, so, sometimes people sort of like, well, we've agreed that timetable. Why are we moving away from that timetable? Well, we're moving away from it because we can't stick to it. So it, it's it's being prepared to be mm. flexible and look for solutions all the time, each time mm. sort of like a little problem arises. So obviously the Crossrail 1 issue was a problem and a bigger problem than we thought. So it's being flexible about what what do we do about that? How mm. how can we still like keep the scheme going? How can we come f- come forward with solutions that show how we can meet the objectives mm. that are required for the scheme, but address this whole affordability issue? So it's just being flexible and positive, yeah. and and sort of trying to ensure that um, everyone working with you wants to sort of go forward in that direction. Yeah. So it's not a sort of major surgery that you've kind of been trying to undertake each time one of these things is thrown into your path. It's actually looking at just trying to keep people finding their own solutions in their own discipline. Uh, I, th- I think I think because of the amount of work we've done historically, we've got a good understanding of the component parts of the scheme. And we have sort of had like three designs in terms of each time there's been a sort of phase of Crossrail 2 there's been a sort of like a new design team that's sort of like been procured because they've won the competition and they've come in with sort of you know a view to say is this sort of like right so so it's so it's had it's had quite a sort of like big 
kicking in, yeah. in, in many ways in understanding sort of like how well how well it works. Um, and a lot of work's been done in understanding sort of like how the component parts fit together, what's necessary, you know, do you really need all this stuff? Could you do without some of this stuff? So it's, it's like having a big jigsaw puzzle and perhaps, you know, you lose some of the pieces, so you have to sort of try and finish it off some other way. But but gen- generally, I'd, I'd say the Crossrail team's been excellent in mm. terms of each time there has been a sort of um, a new challenge, rising to that challenge and addressing mm. it. Great. So if it does get phased, then do do we know what the phases are? You've got to do the tunnel bit first, I presume. That would be otherwise. Uh, in in terms of the phasing, we've put forward proposals, and that that's the key thing that sort mm-hmm. of has to be considered in mm-hmm. the SOBC. Right, and that's currently there being considered before yes. you want to yes go too public on what they are. No, I mean what what no. one wants to do is mm-hmm. to ensure that the first phase gives you as much of the benefits as possible. Yeah, um, because that the, the the thing about a phase is that if, if, if you're asked to sort of chop up the scheme, you could chop it up in phases or you could chop it up in stages. And a phase, like HS2 phase one, is something that has to stand on its own two feet. Yeah. So just in case you never do phase two, can phase one stack up by itself? So it's got to stack up by itself. Whereas if you're staging it, it's just stage delivery, then the first stage might not be as robust by itself, but the second stage sort of like makes it more complete so with, with phasing you have to make sure it stands on its own two feet right. um, and will deliver I say you know as many benefits as possible for the costs of that phase so we've been looking at all different ways in which that could be done and have come up with a proposal that we think addresses all of that okay well we look forward to, to seeing it when uh, it's been considered <laughs> um, and and I guess then bottom, the bottom line question and ultimately really is it's currently a £41 billion project. Um, doing it in phases or stages, will, will that change that at all or is, is that what it is? Uh, if, you, if you do it in phases, then it's only going to cost more if you're requiring what we'd call nugatory infrastructure for phase one. So you're trying to sort of ensure that what you do for phase one doesn't require you to build stuff that's not necessary for phase two um key to whether or not it costs much more if you're building it in phases depends on the gap between the phases yeah of course mm. um but i say we're, we're trying to ensure that we're not putting stuff in phase mm. one that then it's not necessary for phase two so it's just wasted infrastructure yeah because that wouldn't be very clever would it it would not and <laughs> and i would well We'd like to think we are evolved beyond um, building a necessary infrastructure. Yes, so, yes. So, yeah, that sounds like a good plan. Yeah. Okay. So. so then I guess then the killer question is once it does get to go ahead mm. then, and whether it's staged, phased, or done in one, one big lump, mm. um, can our industry deliver it for your 41 billion price or whatever the desired price is at that stage? It's a £29 billion pound project in 2014 prices. <laughs> I'll just remind Correct you it. of that. <laughs> just remind you of that. Um, and yes, the industry can do it if the industry knows it's coming. I mean, it's all this business about sort of like having a pipeline of projects and having sort of like certainty that something's going to happen. Because if, if you know things are going to happen, then, then you can develop the resources that you need to address them. You just don't want to be told last minute, I need this, you know, is there something shovel ready? And why, why can't you lot deliver it now? Yeah. So, so ha- having, having a clear sort of strategy about what you want to deliver when, um, giving due notice that something's going to happen, yes, the industry can respond to that. 
I think it is also important to look at all the different schemes that are being proposed and make sure you've got a sensible pipeline of delivering those schemes so that you don't aim to do all of them at the same time because that's not a pipe, well, it's, I suppose, a very big, fat pipeline, isn't it? You want, to, you want sort of like a series of, sort of schemes where you're sort of like phasing that so that's sensible for the industry. Yeah. How does the industry respond then, given all that, and the efforts that have been going on from Treasury over the last five plus years to mm. create that pipeline, or at least at least it was a list, if nothing mm. else, was it not? But given the political climate of late, and speaking from a position where you've had five strategic yeah. reviews, how does the industry have that confidence in that pipeline when it sees it and how much faith is there in new infrastructure projects being announced I suppose on the more broad point? I I think obviously there's been uncertainty in the past Mm. like few years um, because of Brexit Mm. that B word um, and one hopes that so like post whenever it's going to be if it's going to be more certainties going to be introduced mm. but at the same time I mean what a lot of people have said and I agree with certainly committing to infrastructure schemes is going to sort of send a positive signal yeah. to the industry that we're still open for business and we and, and we're still going to grow and we need, need these schemes to support growth but but industry needs to know that that's going to happen mm. without sort of like being told as I say you know I want this to happen next year I want it to happen as quickly as possible and why aren't you lot ready mm. um yeah. So having having a long term plan, and the National Infrastructure Commission has always wanted that to happen, mm. which is why why it's identified different schemes, why it's why it's identified it's like top twelve and when they might happen. Mm. It's looked to see how they sort of pan out and the funding required for all of those in relation to each other, and said, well, it's affordable, um, and if it's affordable and it's you know it's phased, then it's a pipeline. And by and conversely, if you do get announcements that are very positive about infrastructure from whoever mm. is in position to give that and, and has been in the position to give that in the last couple of years, how quickly does industry, is it going to be able to latch onto that with that full confidence, do you think? Because again, are we not just perhaps going to be a bit tentative or see very tentative steps from them in their response if it's sort of like, yes, it's announced, believers, it really will happen? And there's actually, it's quite difficult to really make that promise from anyone, I suppose. Uh, well, there's still, there's still a lot of interest from industry mm. from these projects and wanting to work on these mm. projects. Um, and Good people, faith. Sort of, yeah, and, yeah, and people are genuinely sort of like wanting to be involved in them. I think it's just, it, it's just the sort of challenge of, um, particularly on the um, construction side, knowing when all the people are needed to provide uh, the resources. And obviously, if you've got, more resources that are built in trained yourself so you're not sort of like fighting over resources um for different mm-hmm. projects because they've they've clashed in some way then that's not a very clever thing either mm-hmm. but so like ha- having that pipeline making sure that there's clarity on what the timelines are for delivering it industry would want to support mm-hmm. it i mean mm-hmm. they do do they're all wanting to work on stuff and and you talk about industry support mm-hmm. to what extent do you think the industry is supporting you around the kind of the, the broader objective of making these schemes more affordable is i mean crossroad two is many things but one thing it certainly is a big tunnel mm. and treasury has, has done a number of kind of looks at how do you make tunneling more affordable in this country the pipeline is is always one kind of sort of reason thrown yeah. back as to why yeah. it, you know why it does cost more here but i'm sure there are other reasons and and 
innovating is 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 an area which you we could look at we could do more in so how much sort of i suppose how how much of that are you getting from the industry and, and how much are you open to, to innovation in, in these kind of big projects well there's, there's two things what what are you asking for as clients mm-hmm. um and what what is the industry delivering and what have you learned from what you've just done mm-hmm. so you know if, if you've done something um and it's cost you so and so to actually do when it comes to doing it again, do you actually have to reinvent it? Do you have to yeah. sort of say, let's do it in a different way? Can you just not do it again, uh, but do it better? Yeah. Um, there's lots of lessons learned from Crossrail 1 in terms of um, what they've constructed. And people will have views about whether or not they constructed it in exactly the same way again. You know, if you give them the same challenge, yeah. we do it slightly differently because you've learned that you can do it you know, cheaply, it doesn't have to be as thick as that, it doesn't have to be done in that particular way, it could be done more cheaply, um, not using as much material, it could be done in terms of off-site um, manufacture, etc. Um, but, but it doesn't have to be reinvented, it, it can be done again more cheaply. And certainly in, in some of the work that we've done on the costing for Crossrail 2, um, benchmarking, looking at all these sort of like programs that are out there about uh, developing more efficient ways of um, construction you can make sort of like savings of between 10 and 40 percent depending on the sort of like the benchmarking that you're looking at um, and, and and therefore there are gains to be made without going out and reinventing something brand new do you think and i'm not going to use them as a lemon drizzle analogy <laughs> It's a great analogy. <laughs> you have to read that in the magazine. Do you think that situation is totally car- comparable with where Crossrail 1 was at in its inception? Because I think we did hear an awful lot from Crossrail 1 in our, the re- various supplements that we published at the time that mm. it was a tried and tested approach. There was much that they'd learnt from CTRL mm. at the time. Do you think, was there a naivety there or an ambition that didn't get realised? It feels well, I mean, hard the, t- to... the tunnelling for Crossrail 1 went very well. Yeah. You know, it's it's yeah. it, it's the stations, um, and obviously the complexity of the sort of systems and, mm. and the whole thing being integrated together. So I think people do learn lessons, and it's also often easier to learn lessons if the if the personnel who've learnt them can then apply them. Mm. Um, but but learning from what other people have done and hearing hearing the bad things and knowing about the bad things, I think is really important if you're going to sort of like deliver something better next time round and people not being sort of like um, shy of sharing the things that have gone wrong as opposed to saying everything that's gone well well that's an interesting point again that's sort of a, a the softer skills side yeah. of it that we've talked about before on an earlier podcast actually but um and you mentioned earlier about the team and how it was yeah. responding your team and keeping them motivated to remain agile to yeah. changing circumstances it's great that it's, you're bringing that part of your team with you and perhaps like you say retaining the expertise and the knowledge out there about Crossrail One but what about the broader skill set is is there more that needs to come through in the uh, the younger intake the newer intake into the project what what's the the benefit that they're going to bring to the project you think that's different or or will they just be able to sort of learn from past experiences as well with research I guess um well I think number of things in, in that question one it's good to have the skills from uh, people who've, who've had the experience of doing something and and sharing what went wrong as well as what went right but equally it's really important to get new new 
skill sets in and a more diverse workforce, mm. um, particularly to have more women yeah. in the industry. And I think in, in many ways, if you have got some women in the team already, it's easier to attract more women into the team. I went to Leeds University for the simple reason that in my day, you know, back in the early 70s, if you went around the universities looking at civil engineering courses, quite often you'd be the only girl on the course in all three years. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound much fun, you know, just being the only one. Uh, but Leeds had 10. Wow. wow. I thought, well, I'm going there because I'll have some mates. Um, but it's, 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 you know, if, if you've got some women there already, you'll attract some more women. And certainly Crossrail too has got a good percentage of women um, in the team. What is the percentage? 34%, which I think for an engineering project is is good. And our head of scheme development um, is a woman, um, Isabel. She's a woman. She does really, really well. Her main sponsor is a woman. Um, But but people attract other people. Um, They need to see people that look a bit like them out there in the roles that they want to be in, I suppose. That's the other important point. Well, it, well it, I think it's just, just an attraction, and once mm. you get a core, then mm. it starts to make a difference. So getting, getting new skills mm. in is important, but I, but I don't think you should ignore what experience people have learnt. So where, where you've got an experienced person who've actually done something, and they say, you know, when we did this, this happened, that is really useful knowledge. Mm. Now, whether you then say, oh, we'll do the same again, or whether you say, well, that's, you know that's really good is a way in which we can sort of like do it better mm. whatever um shows how well you'll sort of like take knowledge and experience from yeah. that that person's learning but putting those two sorts of people together is is can only be good for a team so people with experience and people willing to learn and people with different viewpoints mm. all like melding together and in reality i do you actually have some of those people from crossrail who are feeling like they can be candid with you about how Things might have gone so wrong, and what you can get out of them. Uh, there's there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who have worked on Crossrail One who now work on Crossrail Two. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the assurance that we have, we invite people specifically who've had sort of that experience to review what we've done and to be able to criticise or otherwise so like what we're proposing, and for us to learn from that. Um, we've had lots and lots of sort of um, conversations with people about their experiences good and bad good. so we can we can learn from that but say it's just drawing on all yeah. of this from from all sort of different sources yeah. um it's great to sort of talk to mark wilde about what he's learned from crossrail one mm. and all of that is relevant to to what we might do going forward really relevant i think yeah. people everywhere will just want to hear that that's yeah. happening won't they yeah. i think yeah. you know the olympics really had a great endeavor published a legacy website mm. but we're not sure that anyone <laughs> anecdotally has yeah. ever really read back and been able to really use that material to great effect so it's I think just on the sort of we're talking well the major major projects association has set up the knowledge hub Mm -hmm. which which seeks to sort of share knowledge and lessons learned from major projects Um, but what but what you do want is some of those like more nitty gritty stuff bits bits of stuff in there um, which which you often get from conversations but it's great it's yeah. it's all it's all good stuff. It's all good stuff. And as you you know, getting a more diverse kind of um, organisation, getting mm. getting more getting a and, and all kinds of diversity mm. must must help with that kind of free flowing of you know knowledge sharing. 
maybe it also does bring some different perspectives into into what the project's all about as well. And and the sort of final thing I just was keen to touch on really was there's a lot of talk now um, around net zero after we'll see now. Former Prime Minister Theresa May signed mm. signed the commitment to to make us net zero by 2050. Cross World Two is a rail scheme. Rail schemes are pretty good in yeah. terms of helping us achieve our, our net zero ambitions. So does that feed in? Is that going to help make the case for Cross World Two? I mean, it must do surely because yeah. it's yeah, got I mean, to be a big we, part. We, of it. we have already at the stage we are in the project got a sort of like carbon footprint. Mm. So we sort of calculated that for the scheme in terms of you know the impact that we will have in constructing it in sort of like operating it uh, the impact it will have on the environment through its operations um, and uh, made, made commitments in terms of how we can try and reduce that carbon footprint because obviously you know cement and concrete generate carbon steels and stuff so how, how can how can we construct it in a um, a more carbon sort of like uh, efficient way yeah um, in terms of the spoil removal, how can we minimise the amount of energy required in removing the spoil associated with the tunnel? So, so having that carbon footprint at this stage of the project is actually pretty innovative. Good, good. That's one area where one's innovative. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, and that's and that needs to be part of the mix yes, more so, yes. doesn't it? So that's really, yeah. really is quite encouraging. Um, and and some re- really good work with our um, with our sort of like suppliers on that in terms of developing that carbon footprint. So mm. good stuff. Well, as well as making sure what we can do individually, so all over the office we've got sort of like you know the sustainability goals and sort of stuff that we as individuals can do to help reduce carbon. Actually, that is good because I think sometimes it can feel a bit detached. Or if you're looking yeah. at the project, yeah. you're not necessarily thinking that already you are the project yeah. collectively as a team, and there are things that can be done already. That's great. Yeah. So we've we've got really a lot of that going on, and and actually. I'm part in part influenced at home because sort of like all my family bar me's turned vegetarian, oh. so to reduce carbon, and I still Pressure. like a bacon butty. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of the time, it's That's you know cute. be good. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Michelle. I did have one final question mm. for you. Um, you mentioned one B word already, and the Brexit word. There's mm. a there's a second B word around, which is the new Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Now you used to work for. Boris, I used to work for Mr. Boris Johnson. Yes, you did. So we've asked the question this this month: um, Is he going to be our infrastructure champion? I mean, he was the man who pressed the button on Crossrail and numerous other, perhaps slightly more questionable infrastructure projects in in London. Um, so, what do you think? Is he is he our infrastructure czar? Uh, well, well, the Prime Minister has been up to uh, the north and it's talked mm. to the Northern Powerhouse Rail people how he supports us, like Manchester's Leeds um, Railway, the new, the, the new scheme there. Um, he's, he was supportive of Crossrail too. He initiated it um, with, the, uh, with George Osborne at the time. Yeah. Mm. Um, he was very supportive of taking forward the Northern Line extension yeah. in terms of proposal as mayor. So he, he did a lot of infrastructure as mayor in terms of, sort of like um, identifying schemes that needed to be built and um we'll see what happens going forward mm, absolutely um obviously his first big infrastructure move has been to, re- to review high speed two should we be worried about that or is that a good thing i think the review is seeking to uh um come to a sort of a an evidence-based conclusion in terms of uh, what's necessary yeah um and uh that will report later in the autumn yeah that feel that feels feels like where we're at from from our perspective i don't think we should be fearing that i think 
the the man he's got to to do review is uh, is is going to struggle to find too much wrong with it. Seeing as he used to be a chairman of it himself. Well, the, so. the, pa- the panel the panel has people who are who have yeah. been um, involved in terms of sort mm. of like this, as you mm. know, Doug was the chair, mm. but it's also got you know the deputy chair as somebody who's it's not been quite been post supportive. Yeah. So it's got people mm. with different like views of the scheme, and I say it'll be evidence based to conclude yeah. what's the right thing to do mm. going so, forward. Good. few people who'd like to be flies on the wall in those rooms where they're discussing things but yes we shall all have to be patient <laughs> yes and we've been very patient with very. our five you've been very patient cases. with yes. your five business hs two still got some catching up if it wants and it's, it's, it's worth saying we, we have five p's in crossrail two oh. that we work with in terms of like patience oh. perseverance oh. positivity and then the team gave me two more, and that oh. was pizza and prosecco. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a recipe for life. I love it. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Michelle. What, what better way to end it than thank that? You. Thank you very much for oh, joining thank us. You. Thank and you very we much for inviting clearly me. wish you luck um, and hope you get a very positive response in the spending review, whenever that may be. Yes, thank you very much. Fingers or thumbs up or whatever. Brilliant. Thank you, Michelle. So that's it, episode five in the bag. Thanks so much for listening and do subscribe to make sure that you don't miss out on hearing when the next one comes out, but it's every last Wednesday of the month. Also share with your friends, family, colleagues. Do leave a review. Let us know what you think. And thanks again for listening to the Engineers Collective. And you can join the conversation on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, or any other social media outlet of your choice by using the hashtag The Engineers Collective. We'll be back next month with Victoria Hills, Chief Executive of the Royal Town Planning Institute. See you then. This podcast was brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. Valued for their depth, breadth and scalability, Bentley Software Solutions can help you gain insight from the data you create and coordinate, improve decisions and achieve better business outcomes. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash en forward slash going digital.